I'd hoped that taking a few days off for the Thanksgiving holiday would prove to have no news interruptions of significance. And that turned out to be like a shepherd taking a break from watching his flock by night and thinking, what could possibly happen? So you probably already know what's going on. But just in case you haven't heard, I'll bring you up to speed. Let's start with the Trump team presented stunning testimony on alleged voter fraud before the Pennsylvania Senate with multiple sworn witnesses attesting to outrageous things that they saw and were barred from seeing. Sidney Powell also filed her separate lawsuit in Georgia, and it's detailed, voluminous, and makes 30 allegations of voter fraud. And for those who dismiss claims of tampering with vote software, the lawsuit also details other irregularities, including thousands of people receiving absentee ballots that they did not request, and over 20,000 ballots allegedly cast by people who had moved out of the state. This is a major threat to Biden's media-driven coronation. And if you saw the last bit of the news just before I came on this broadcast, it looks as if there's a strong possibility that Georgia's vote could be overturned and Trump could win Georgia. Another thing in the news is Trump pardoned Michael Flynn. The pardon was hilariously slammed as an abuse of power by some of the same people who cheered on a rogue FBI's attempt to entrap, smear, destroy, bankrupt, and imprison Flynn for doing nothing illegal. The same people defended the out-of-control judge who refused to stop prosecuting Flynn even after the DOJ dropped the charges. Now, here's something that's truly worth giving thanks for. Wednesday night, in a 5-4 to four ruling, the Supreme Court slapped down New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's coronavirus restrictions on houses of worship. The Scotus found that Cuomo's edicts were not only more severe than other jurisdictions hit hard by the pandemic and stricter than necessary, but they were also discriminatory and in violation of the First Amendment. Attorneys for Jewish groups had argued that Cuomo made the discrimination clear when he specifically threatened to close down synagogues of Orthodox Jewish groups. In the majority opinion, Justice Gorich pointed out that Cuomo made exceptions for all sorts of secular businesses that he deemed essential, but not for places of worship. And even if they followed the same safety protocols, Gorsuch wrote, quote, that it was exactly the kind of discrimination the First Amendment forbids, unquote. But not surprisingly, not surprisingly, Cuomo, who had spent much of his workday in raging tyrant mode lately, brushed off the SCOTUS ruling as if it didn't apply to him. And it meant nothing to him. And he thinks that the justices are just expressing their philosophy. And that Democrats claim that Trump act, Trump is the one who's acting like a dictator. Then Cuomo attacked Trump, blaming him for the ruling because it was the first ruling in which Justice Amy Coney Barrett played a decisive role. And you know what? Thank God for that. We finally have someone who will overcome the margin of John Roberts and protect the Constitution. Cuomo's probably right about one thing, though. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg had still been on the court and with Chief Justice Roberts, 
again, siding with the liberals against freedom of religion, the ruling would have gone the other way. But he's dead wrong about this being conservative partisanship. The only shocking thing about this ruling is that it was not unanimous. The liberals and whatever Roberts is about should have sided with the conservatives on this open and shut case of blatant religious discrimination. Justice Gorsuch hit the nail on the head when he wrote, quote, there is no world in which the Constitution tolerates color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops, but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques, unquote. The idea that anyone, no matter their political leanings, could ascend as high as the Supreme Court and not understand something so basic as the First Amendment is staggering. The court ruling that Governor Cuomo violated the Constitution by acting like a religious bigot is not an expression of personal philosophy. It's a stone-cold fact. Any judge who cannot recognize that should either go back to law school or find another line of work. Let's hit a little bit of world news. Mohsen Farazad. Farazad? I probably just butchered his name. The leader of the Iran's uh, military nuclear program that Israel says is working on developing nuclear weapons was assassinated by machine gun fire. And at this time, it's unknown who took him out. But you can always count on former Obama administration officials to quiver with outrage whenever anyone hits Iran. And at this time, it was former CIA director John Brennan. He tweeted that it was, quote, a criminal act and highly reckless, unquote, and urged Iran's leaders to, quote, wait for the return of responsible American leadership on the global stage to resist the urge to respond against perceived culprits, unquote. Now, if you're getting a weird feeling of deja vu, you're not the only one. Journalist Glenn Greenwald pointed out that urging a hostile power to wait under a new administration to take over before retaliating is exactly the same thing that Michael Flynn allegedly said to Russia, for which Brennan and his fellow Trump haters accused him of violating the Logan Act, which bars private citizens from trying to conduct foreign policy. And they tried to destroy and imprison Flynn. Are we actually going to start enforcing the Logan Act now? Or is that one of the many laws that goes down the memory hole if the Democrats get back in? Because if we're enforcing it, then at least now Brennan can keep John Kerry company in prison. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. The intro music and lyrics is entitled, America is Dying, But It's Not Too Late, by Dave Bray and Jeremy Harrell. Dave Bray has amazing patriotic music on YouTube. Go on over and check him out. Tonight, I will be going over some steps to avoid the gridlock during different types of emergency situations and what you can look for to escape dangerous problems in this part one of a two-part series. This is a call-in show, but our phone lines are down. So if you want to call in and make a statement, ask a question, or just give your opinion, please feel free. But you will have to be use, using Skype through PSN Radio. Again, our phone lines are down. 
if any type of disaster ranging from hurricanes to civil unrest happens in your city, depending on your specific preparations, you'll want to get out of the immediate area as quickly as possible. Unless you live outside of the city or just on the outskirts, this may prove quite difficult. People will begin to panic, and when that happens, they become a danger to themselves, you, and everyone else around them. A person can be a highly intelligent and adaptable creature. However, people in a concentrated area that becomes panicked react on instinct, not intelligence. And most of them follow the crowd. Panic spreads like wildfire, and when a mass of people panic, they spook like cattle. And they all attempt to flee at once. Modern cities were made to house the populace. They were not designed to accommodate a mass exodus of hundreds of thousands all at one time. Panic quickly turns to anger, and anger turns to violence. This can easily be seen by looking at any type of evacuation in recent history. With the threat of dwindling supplies and fuel, looting and robbery will quickly ensue. Normally calm and level-headed people can become savages committing violent and unspeakable acts if they feel that they have something, that you have something that they want or need and are unwilling to give it to them. Desperate people are far more likely to become criminals, especially if there's a lack of law enforcement. And you need to learn to not only avoid these strangers, but even the people you may know. The best thing that you can do for the safety of you and your family is to learn where the choke points are on your chosen evacuation route and make sure that you are long gone before the roads come to a complete standstill. Unfortunately, in most situations, you will not have the time to get everything and everyone you need together and leave before the gridlock starts. The other option you have is to learn how to avoid all those choke points like the plague. The first thing you need to do is get a map of your local area, your surrounding area where you live within like a 25 to 30 mile radius. Physical maps are becoming a rarity to find, but you should still be able to find a good local map like at a grocery store, a convenience store, and most of the time at truck stops. You can also choose to take a much modern approach and use digital software and print maps from them. The street-level views from such software can be a major help, as those will give you a visual representation of what you will be seeing while you are evacuating. This will help you pick out and plot landmarks and other points of interest that you will need to help navigate you. One of the key things to remember when using a digital map is that you will need to print it out. I keep a printed and laminated version of my evacuation routes stored away in the back of my pack for just an occasion. When things get bad, regardless of whether it is the weather, a civil breakdown, communication, anything, it is the first thing that will go down will be communication. While you can find food, water, and shelter in the wild, you can't hunt down the Internet to snare a Google map. When the switch gets flipped, it's gone, as though it's never existed. So again, anything that you do online, print it out. Memorize it. Keep it safe. And the next thing you need to do to identify are the major choke points that occur along your main travel routes. A choke point is a place 
where congestion from travel or people might get so bad it will slow you down considerably or stop you completely from getting to your destination. Ask yourself, where is the rush hour traffic the worst in my town? And highlight those sections of roads. Track this at different hours to learn the normal traffic patterns throughout the day. If you live in the United States, you should also be sure to check the Department of Transportation's website. This will keep you aware of any current and ongoing construction that could slow you down. And be sure to mark these spots with pencil instead of a pen. This will allow you to be able to erase them when the construction is finished. Other choke points include bridges, tunnels, canyons, and other spots that can be closed or that could quickly come to a screeching halt during an emergency. Be sure to highlight them on your map. A good rule of thumb for any type of evacuation or escape plan is that you should know, at a minimum, all the streets and alleys and any other alternative routes within a two-mile radius of your home. Two miles might seem like a lot, and to be honest, it is. However, you might be amazed at the amount of ground that you can cover in just a few small car rides or a few short walks. And notice I said walks and rides. Even though we live in a digital age and you have the ability to view your world from a satellite with Google Maps, seeing a bird's eye view of the world does not compare in any way to actually walking and driving your chosen routes. And doing this will allow you to see firsthand how tricky it may be to navigate and also gives you the the ability to make a mental checklist of alternate routes that you wouldn't normally think to take, such as cutting across a field or going down an alley or in someone's backyard. The dictionary defines a choke point as a place of greatest congestion and often the most hazardous. Choke points are also known as bottlenecks. When you're trying to decipher where the bottlenecks or choke points are in your neighborhood, town or city, or along your evacuation route, you need to think of the roads as like a stream. All of the brooks, which is the neighborhood streets, flow into tributaries, which are the main streets which then flow into rivers, which are the freeways and interstates. At each connection point between the smaller flow and the larger, faster-moving flow is a chance for a bottleneck. These choke points can be caused by too much debris, other cars or actual debris in the road. In any neighborhood with a school zone, you will notice that in the summer months, you can easily cruise through these areas with little to no traffic. However, during the months when school is in session, if you do not time your departure correctly, the streets become nearly impassable from the swell of vehicles and school buses lurching along at a slower speed and having to make more frequent stops. So if you take a look at the map, plot some markers on some of the intersections of the streams. If you notice there are quite a few of them in your neighborhood, these are all locations that could be seen as a potential threat for a bottleneck. And there could be multiple narrow streets that flow out into the slightly larger streets. And they only have minimal amount of connections to the main roads that could lead to the highway. Now, plot the times that are most likely to become clogged. With the above plotted information, create a map that could take you away from the normal flow of traffic during a crisis. In a mandatory evacuation, my personal choice would be dictated by the disaster at hand, But my first plan, regardless of the situation, is going to be for me to find the most direct route out that takes the least traveled roads. And while most people 
are going to go head straight to the main roads and try to get on the highways, and that will most likely already be at a standstill when they get there, I'm going to head the opposite direction. I'm going to take several smaller roads that's going to lead me to a less traveled highway. As these back roads will have far fewer houses and far less traffic to contend with, I should have no trouble getting to my desired area based on my plan. However, with that being said, you can never tell what will happen to a road in a crisis. This is where knowing every road within a two-mile radius comes in extremely handy. Having that knowledge affords you a plethora of contingency plans to choose from. The knowledge and ability to choose a different path on the fly without having to backtrack or run the risk of becoming lost will afford you the peace of mind and precious minutes to sail out of a disaster long before the masses catch up to you. In any critical situation, traffic won't be the only hazard that you need to worry about. You'll also want to avoid any group of people outside of your personal community during and immediately after crisis, as they may still be panicked and irrational. In a disaster, those who are not prepared tend to flock to the area in which they believe food and water will be freely available. Even if there is initially a surplus of supplies, it will run out. This will cause a second wave of panic. Some of the people may again turn violent and start looting and robbing one another. This sort of thing happened during Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, when government-designated shelters ran out of provisions, even churches. Find these places on your map and avoid them like the plague. Churches, hospitals, schools, stadiums, they are going to be jam-packed with people. One of the easiest ways to locate these places and steer clear of them is again to use Google Maps before a crisis strikes. Once you've selected your area, type in the keywords above one at a time, and it will locate them for you to automatically know where they are. Now you'll need to mark each of these locations with an easily recognized symbol, such as an X or a circle or a square or whatever. Lastly, you'll want to find out about areas with high criminal activity in your city. Keep track of the local news and be sure to visit sites like crimereports.com or spotcrime.com to find crime hotspots in your area. If there are danger spots in your area, just imagine how much worse they will be in a disaster. So be sure to circle them and give them a wide berth from your evacuation route. So if you follow the directions that I just gave you, you should now have an extremely detailed and personal map of your area with heavy traffic and choke points noted. Large gathered places marked with an X and places with large amounts of crime circled, adding all of these items together will allow you to plan, alter, and perfect your emergency evacuation route. Now the next thing you need to do is either plan your escape route or alter it based on the criteria that you've added to your map. When the SHTF, or stuff hits the fan, odds are you're not going to be at home. And the average American commutes about 30 minutes, if not longer, to work. 
it would be a good idea to use the same criteria above that, that I just talked about to create and plan an alternate route from your workplace to your home that avoids all the situations mentioned. And you should create a plan if getting back to your home is not an option and you need to get directly from your workplace to your bug out location. There will more than likely be several possible routes, so go for a drive now. Well, maybe not at nighttime. And try try each one of these these routes. Whichever ones have the best roads and the widest and most easily accessible streets are probably the ones you should plan on using. Regardless of which one you plan to use, you will still want to know all the possible routes to avoid becoming stuck in a dead end or utterly lost and losing valuable time during the small window that you're going to have to get out before the panic strikes the masses. I use a red pen to draw this route on my map, and I make color copies, one for every vehicle and a few more to keep at home in my, my go bags. Having a plan made out ahead of time will afford you the precious moments you need to get out ahead of the crowd. And disasters are highly unpredictable and disruptive events that cause suffering, deprivation, injury, death. And as a result of direct injury, disease, the interruption of commerce and business, and the partial or total destruction of critical infrastructure, such as homes, hospitals, bridges, power lines, etc., disasters can be caused by anything naturally occurring events, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, or they can be the result of man-made events, either accidental, such as terrorist bombings, well, that's not really accidental, shootings, poisonings, riots, anarchy. Certain types of natural disasters are more likely to occur in particular parts of the world, like areas on the coastlines, lakes, or rivers are more likely to experience flooding problems than a landlocked area. However, almost every place you could live in prone to one type of natural disaster or another, no place is absolutely safe from a natural disaster. And it goes without saying that no place is safe from the threats posed by terrorism or other man-made disasters. It may be impossible to avoid disasters, but it is possible to plan ahead and prepare to minimize the impact that any given disaster might have on you or your family's health, safety, and property. When a disaster strikes, people can lose everything. Local supermarket shelves will soon run empty. Water supplies may become tainted. Entire communities may fall apart overnight. Only those who are prepared for any major disaster scenario can make the decision that will keep us and our loved ones safe. Only proper planning and preparation will allow you to remain organized and effective both physically and mentally during a disaster. Disaster preparation is not a linear process. Buying supplies at your local store does not make you prepared. You will need to research the types of disasters that are most likely to occur in your area. You will need to determine which physical items that you're going to need to already have ready and packed in case you must evacuate. I have a, a, a go bag in my truck. I have a go bag in my home hanging on a, a hook. So if something happens, I can just grab the bag and go. I do not need to fumble through my house to try to find what I need to throw in a bag. It is already there. Scouting 
your immediate area ahead of time will help you evacuate quickly and avoid the choke points while other less prepared people are frantically trying to do the same and are willing to do anything to evacuate. And you will need to know how to protect yourself from harm and how to nourish yourself if there's no supermarkets around. You'll need to know how to move both quickly and inconspicuously. Disaster scenarios can create hectic situations and bring out the worst in people. The faster you move and the less noticeable you are, the safer you will be. Now we're going to go through some types of disasters like hurricanes. If the hurricane is so destructive that you must evacuate the immediate area, an alternate more distinct meeting point will be necessary. This location should also be known to everyone in your home or your team and should be scouted out together as a team or a family ahead of time. Preferably, this location should be far away so that you are outside the range of imminent harm. It should be close enough that your family member, every family member, will be able to get there on their own if they have to. Sewing small pockets into your shirts, pants, and jacket linings is a great way to prepare for hurricanes as well. Like during a hurricane, flooding will often destroy important documents. Making copies of identification cards and placing them into pre-sewn pockets along with some cash is a great way to make a shirt, make sure everyone can get to where they need to be if they're left alone. And this can prove to be a life-saving tactic with regards to kids and the elderly. Simply making all of the documents that you need or make copies of them and withdraw about $100 and $20 bills from your bank account. Fold the documents and cash neatly in small squares and sew them into the inner lining of the clothing or in your bug out bag. This way, even if folks do not have time to pick up their cell phones, wallets, or original identification materials, they still have access within their bug out bags. And the walkie-talkie is a way of hedging your bets against downed phone lines or wireless network failures. Hurricanes can disable power lines and take down cell phone towers. Keep in mind that walkie-talkies have a small range of about 5 to 30 miles, depending on buildings, mountains, etc. There are far more useful in the early moments of a separation than they are later on in increasing distances. They can also be picked up by scanners, so even if you cannot communicate with your family, you can still call for help and expect someone to hear you. And one final point about hurricanes, and I'm not, not going to uh, single just hurricanes out. In any disaster or riot situation, trust no one. And I will repeat this point several times throughout this series as to hammer home the actual on-the-spot insanity of disaster situations. You should always rely on yourself first and be wary of all persons, whether they are are authority figures or not. Trust only your team. Trust only your family, who is part of your community. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, multiple New Orleans police officers were prosecuted for crimes. A select group was even charged with homicide of a mentally retarded man whom they shot in the back. Now, this is by no means a pot shot at law enforcement officers. It's merely a reminder that everyone is susceptible to erratic behavior during a disaster and that your trust cannot be blind. Preparing yourself 
and your family to be quick, smart, and efficient during a hurricane minimizes the potential of getting involved in volatile situations which could lead to conflict, violence, or worse. Remember, the most important action in a hurricane is movement. You should never want to be stationary. Always be moving towards your meeting point and or away from the storm. So let's talk about riots. That seems to be the the most prominent thing that is going on right now. Like the most recent riots in the last three years or so, it's shocked the nation and reminded us that we do not need nature to create a disaster. There's been more riots in our streets, more crime in our streets, and sometimes our neighbors and fellow citizens can do that all by themselves. Sometimes humans are capable of doing far more damage than any natural disaster. A riot will require your endless vigilance and studious observation. There will be no weather report issuing warnings about any oncoming riot. Riots happen organically and spread worse than a wildfire. The best thing you can do to prepare for a riot is to secure yourself and your team long before the first signs of trouble. And riots will offer up two basic tactical options. One will require staying and the other will require going. In either case, arming yourself is an absolute must. The most secure tactic is to purchase, store, and practice using a firearm. And secondary, you can use weapons such as stun guns and pepper spray. They can be useful. Taking the self-defense class wouldn't hurt even though riots usually don't feature hand-to-hand combat skills. Keep in mind that non-firearm self-defense tools and tactics are only as useful at close range and against one assailant at a time. In a riot, you're far less likely, likely to face individual assailants and far more likely to run up against any unruly mob. Those choosing to stand their ground against rioters should secure their home and property. All doors must have deadlocks and all entry points to your home and property should be secured. Your home should have a panic room. This is a secure, impenetrable location somewhere on your property, which cannot be entered from the outside once it's locked from the inside. And most of the time, nobody but you and your family knows where it's located. And if you're a good shooter and have a solid weapons arsenal backed by ample ammunition, you'll be far better equipped to protect your home, business, or property. Mobs function by animal reasoning and logic. Use the jungle as your conceptual guide. If it happens in the animal kingdom, it can happen during a riot. A pack of hyenas will much rather attack a group of gazelles and antelopes than they would a solitary tiger or a lion. In some cases, the bigger, faster, and stronger the hyenas will veer away from a cobra or a rattlesnake. The reason is simple. Anyone or anything that can cause damage to the mob becomes a less attractive target. The mob wants to crush and pillage, so it seeks the weak. Don't be weak. If you're strong and can cause damage, you'll have a better chance of survival. It's important 
to be prepared for a riot and being prepared for what the mob will do if someone on your team has a big mouth. People who riot generally have nothing to lose. They're distraught and distressed, devoid of empathy for anyone who has something that they don't have. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting on a year's worth of food supplies or if your family is barely surviving on a few cans of beans. If you have something of value, you will draw attention to yourself when you tell any other person or just that one person outside of your team that you have something. Keep this in mind when you're stockpiling your arsenal and taking target practice. A 50 caliber machine gun or an RPG can seem like an all-powerful weapon. It'll scare the pants, shirts, and spinal columns off of anyone stupid enough to challenge your position. But you must remember that unless you have a full-scale platoon at your service, the mass of the herd will eventually overpower you. And at some point, you'll have to go to sleep or let your guard down. And when this moment comes, your guns will be rendered useless and the herds are going to attack. And they're going to run you into the ground. Keep this possibility in mind when deciding whether to draw your weapons without having backup. There's a lot of people out there that think, oh, I have weapons and I can. I was trained 30 years ago in the military. If you have not kept your training up and you are a lone person, you are a fool to have that attitude. You are not a one-man army, no matter how good you think you are. You must have some examples in mind when deciding to dig in and face a mob. It doesn't mean that taking a shot at someone will lead to a full-blown occupation of your location. It does, however, mean that you must analyze all of the possible outcomes and act on the basis of information and knowledge and not fear and emotion. If you choose to escape the rioting, you must make peace with the destruction and loss of your property that's being looted your home, your business, it'll probably be robbed and picked clean. Home and business owners alike must have proper insurance coverage and be ready to pack their most valuable possessions at a moment's notice. Once you leave, you cannot go back until the writing is over. Because if you do, they're going to take you down. Securing your vehicles is highly recommended for riot evacuations as well. And you'll think, why make it harder on the mob? They're just going to break the windows anyway. I would rather have a window between me and a mob to buy me a little bit of time for escape than to roll down my window and say, here I am. Well, I have armor on my vehicle. Well, you know, it's worth mentioning that no amount of armor can protect a vehicle from a big enough mob. No matter how well-equipped or powerful your vehicle is, it'll not be able to drive through crowds thicker than brick walls. But the key to making the decision to go through those brick walls takes a high dose of intestinal fortitude, or what most people refer to as guts. And you'll have to make the decision to step on that gas pedal and not let up, not for anyone or anything. There's been riots in England and Egypt, and the underscores of various themes and options that we've discussed. Preparation, calmness, and the right approach can mean the difference between life and death. In the United uh, United Kingdom, for instance, 
unfriendly weapons laws caused the premium of baseball bats and cricket paddles to skyrocket. Practically overnight, sporting goods stores and household items became valuable means of protection and self-defense. When Egypt, on the other hand, featured both aspects of firearms scenario, those who were well-armed were able to protect themselves, but also faced undue attention from the authorities. Since a lot of makeshift weapons were made and used, those with actual guns were presumably in a position to feel more secure. That having been said, an environment featuring the total breakdown of the local infrastructure could easily make weapon holders a primary target. Egypt would actually wind up being a rather benign situation for most citizens as they were largely all on one side. This is perhaps the final point I can make about riots. If you know the who the players are and who controls what sphere of influence, you can go undercover and blend into the mob if the opportunity pres- presents itself. Riots are constantly evolving in a crisis issue. Each one is different and specific to its own region. Knowing where you live and who your neighbors are factors into the equation, which should not and cannot be overlooked. Oftentimes, a display of strength is enough to entice the mob to go somewhere else for quelling on their primitive desires. Whether it's a firmly secured home or a display of firepower from a perched position, a show of strength can be the difference between life and death. And awareness is crucial during a riot. Always be aware of your surroundings and attempt to avoid the conflict. Those who suffer the least are often those who are the least likely to get noticed. Whatever play you make, attempt to make it quietly, quickly, and efficiently. Let's hit some earthquakes. Earthquakes are the result of a sudden release of energy in the Earth's crust. With um, They create seismic waves. These waves shoot through the Earth's core, creating shaking and sometimes structural uh, fracturing in the ground. As a result, anything which sits on the surface is in danger of falling apart or breaking. Luckily, earthquakes usually occur near major fault lines, such as like the San Andreas Fault in California, this does not make them any less severe or destructive. It does, however, offer us the ability to prepare for their occurrence, much like hurricanes. Earthquakes tend to repeatedly occur in the same areas. This means that disaster protocols in those regions will usually be of average efficiency. If you live in one of these regions, you should still take note of some earthquake safety tactics. Keep the following points in mind, as many of them go go against the faulty lessons many of us have been taught. For example, when I was a child, I grew up some years in California, and my mom taught me to never duck and cover like we're taught. This is how people get crushed under pieces of falling roof and ceiling tile. Find a large fixture like a bed or a desk or a sofa and crouch on the floor next to it like an animal. Under no circumstances should you hide underneath anything. Ducking under a desk or a bed will just lead you to get crushed beneath them. 
Ducking next to a large item or a piece of furniture will increase the likelihood of that item absorbing the heavy blows instead of you. If you have to hide inside of something, choose a wooden structure. Wood splinters easily and usually will not crush anyone as opposed to something made of steel or brick. Falling brick, steel, or any sort of metal will crush a human being in an instant. Wood is usually lighter. A few houses today are made out of solid oak and maple trees. The processed wood materials used in houses such as particle board are soft and pliable. They rarely break into large pieces, and even though splinters can hurt, they usually will not kill or maim. The next precaution to take is to make sure you stay out of the doorways and off of staircases. When door jams fall, they can cut people up who stand in those doorways like a slicer would bread. Stay out of doorways is one of the best ways to prevent serious injuries if you're in a collapsing building during an earthquake. And stairs are the most likely part of the building to collapse in an earthquake, and they should be avoided at all costs. Since staircases are not connected to building infrastructure, earthquakes have the effect of shaking staircases into the rest of the building and vice versa. And as a result of this rubbing, the stairs take the brunt of the damage. They have the ground fracturing beneath them and the rest of the structure crashing into them. And hordes of panicky people running on the stairs weaken them quickly. So avoid the stairs at all possible. Let's hit nuclear fallout and radiation. Nuclear fallouts are the most unpredictable of all disaster events. They are not as unpredictable in terms of occurrence as they are in terms of damage and consequence. The effects of nuclear fallout, such as radiation spillage, can be felt for many years after the event. Sometimes exposure to nuclear event can require little more than just a shower. On the other hand, they can render entire geographic regions uninhabitable for decades, and you'll never know which situation you're in when a nuclear event does occur. Therefore, you must act quickly. And much like riots, nuclear fallout presents us with the stay-or-go dilemma. The recent Fukushima nuclear plant crisis in Japan is a good example. Radiation is invisible and not measurable to most people. In Japan, people relied upon their government to tell them whether they were safe or not, and it turns out that early assurances were wrong. The radiation had spread faster than what the authorities, that, than what the authorities had thought or wanted people to know. It's recommended that you do not stay in your home if you are near a nuclear accident, regardless of what the authorities say. If you do decide to stay, that requires preparation, which must, must be done well in advance. And you'll have to be very insulated from any toxic elements to be prepared and to stay withdrawn in an underground shelter for a long period of time. Your underground shelter must be built in places like basements or subway tunnels, and they should possess ample power, water, and food supplies while allowing you the option of not having to exit them for a significant amount of time. Power sources are the first step and will require a large generator in addition to small portable units. I have solar power. 
if my solar power goes out, I have alternative ways, which I, or I do have a generator, but in a nuclear situation, I probably would not use a generator. But I do have lots of batteries and battery-operated lamps, flashlights, radios. Um, they fall under the power umbrella. I also have five or six very large boxes literally full of candles. I also have kitchen mix, hand mixers, um, hand utensils, old Amish and old 18, early 1900 tools that are just hand tools that you don't have to use electricity to use. Those who choose to evacuate doing, during a nuclear disaster will need to react quickly and decisively. In case of nuclear fallout, everyone will hit the major roads and highways. Gridlock can make escape impossible. Therefore, knowing the back roads and rural routes in your vicinity is a great way to get a head start on your evacuation. Study your maps, whether traditional or digital. The next time you're online, spend a few minutes on Google Earth and get specific visuals of your surroundings. Pick up a terrain map. Read it carefully. Get to know what your immediate vicinity looks like. Take some scouting trips, venturing further out on each expedition. Know your geographic region and the travel times between your set points. You can count on nuclear fallout, greatly slowing down traffic and increasing those travel times. Prepare accordingly by finding alternate routes. It is much smarter to take a roundabout routes than, and avoid crowds than if they span, even if it does span a greater distance. Let's hit some wildfires. There have been forest fires all across the nation, devastating fires. Homes burned, cattle fried, millions of acres scorched. Since wildfires spread quickly, it would be insane to try and fight one yourself. The best thing you can do if you see a wildfire is to evacuate on the spot. There are some domestic tactics that you can undertake which can avoid your home becoming the source of a wildfire. And these tactics are especially useful if you live in an area close to a forest or in part of the country in which is prone to droughts. Some of the steps that you can take is trim back brush Remove any dead or dying trees, plants, grass, yard clippings, and any flammable items in a 100-foot radius of your home. Then there's blizzards. Blizzards can be just as deadly as any other disaster and may put us in some incredibly difficult decision-making predicaments if we run out of firewood or if our limbs begin to freeze. Having the right bug-out bag picked and packed for a blizzard may be even more important than in cases of any other natural disaster. Blizzards make the common practice of evacuation almost impossible, or at least highly unlikely. If folks cannot control travel, they cannot gain access to supplies, and this makes blizzard the only disaster event which may erase your escape and evacuation options. And here are 10 general tips to keep in mind if you live in an area which is prone to blizzards. One, Prepare for your power outages and blockage of roads. Winds, ice, and snow tend to bring down power lines. Make sure you have plenty of candles, matches, and lighters, battery-operated radio, emergency food supplies, and tons of blankets. And think about where you're going to put these candles to keep them lit and safe. But a candle can also provide warmth. 
have plenty of food staples like powdered milk and protein bars. If your water supply depends on an electric pump, bottled water may be a good idea. Step two, staying warm when the power goes out may be a problem. Do not think that you're immune if you don't use electricity to heat your home. Many people don't realize that their heating system depends on a boiler that is powered by electricity. Electric stoves and gas stoves that depend on electricity will be powerless if the storm knocks the power lines down. Be prepared with alternative heat sources and plenty of blankets. I have a propane cook stove installed inside my tiny home. The stove is from an RV that I took apart. I have a wood-burning stove for heat, yet I can also cook on top of it if the need arises. 3. Traveling in a blizzard is just not a good idea. If you are on the road during a blizzard, look for a hotel or a motel nearby and stay off the road until driving conditions are safe again. 4. If you get stranded in your vehicle during a bad snowstorm, be prepared with plenty of warm clothes and packaged snack foods. It may seem sensible to leave the engine running to keep warm, but it isn't. The danger of carbon monoxide poisoning is high. Snow can block your exhaust pipe and fill the vehicle with deadly fumes, and you won't know it. Keep one window open just a bit to help avoid this. If you do keep the engine running, you may run out of fuel before the storm is over. And a better idea is to run the engine in short bursts. Turn the engine on long enough to keep the vehicle warm, then turn it off. Keep this routine up until the conditions are stable enough for you to go back on the road. In the winter, I always keep a sleeping bag, two gallons of water, and my extra go bag with extra candles and food supplies, along with wool socks and long johns. Five, designate a spot in the hall closet to keep a bag of warm clothes for each person in the household. If the lights go out, it'll be hard to find that really warm turtleneck or a pair of warm socks or gloves in the dark. Count on the power to be out for at least a day or two and have some board games and a deck of cards on hand. Arts and crafts are always fun for the kids, so ensure you have some of those supplies easily available. Six, consider stocking your blizzard kit. If you live in an area where a blizzard is likely, it wouldn't hurt to stock up batteries, flashlights, battery-operated radio, television. I have solar, bottled water, toilet paper, non-perishable foods such as cereal, crackers, canned goods, non-electric can opener, a small cooler, candles, prescription medications, and any over-the-counter remedies that you use regularly. And if you have infants and toddlers... Diapers, baby wipes, formula, baby food, etc. Number seven, stock up on your sh- your shovels and snow removal equipment before the snowstorm. You may also consider covering your windows and spaces around the doors to keep drafts at a minimum in the event that the heat shuts off and you don't have a wood stove. Eight, if you live in an area that gets bad storms regularly, consider investing in an emergency generator. Have an alternate source of power and an extra fuel source if the main power line goes down. Nine, a cell phone is a hot commodity for the snowbound. Make sure that it's charged and easy to find. I have three mini solar-powered chargers. Each one can charge my phone from a 0% battery up to four times. I keep these chargers charged constantly, even in the summer months. 
Number 10, stay inside. However tempting it may be for the kids to go out and make snow angels or play in the falling snow, use caution. A blizzard can disorient the best survivalist. Just think what it can do to a child. Those blowing winds, both before and after a blizzard, are cold enough to cause frostbite, and snowdrifts can hide many dangers that children will not otherwise see. So please, stay indoors where it's safe and warm. Tornadoes. Much like a blizzard, a tornado may change what you put in your go bag to a more stay-in-place bag. Tornadoes may seem to offer more mobility than blizzards, but they don't. What tornadoes do offer, however, is a tad bit more predictability if you first yourself in tornadoes properly. One of the most important things you can do to prevent being injured in a tornado is to be alert on the onset of severe weather. Most deaths and serious injuries happen to people who are unaware and uninformed. Young kids, children, or the mentally challenged may not recognize an oncoming dangerous situation. The ill, elderly, or invalid may not be able to reach a shelter in time. And those who ignore the weather because of its indifference or overconfidence may not perceive the danger. Stay aware and you will stay alive. This ends part one of this session, since I'm almost out of time. Join me next Sunday night for part two. And this ends the broadcast for me tonight. Thank you for joining me around the campfire. You know my motto. Train hard. Train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time. You say you really care, but America is dying. I don't see no love, no.